The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Help! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 299 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from medical practice. Our topic today is dementia and Alzheimer's disease, taking nothing for granted. The most common type of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is a brain disease that can't be stopped, reversed or cured, and not, or not at least at this time. That's March 2014. It slowly destroys brain functions such as remembering, thinking and speaking, carrying out even simple tasks, and sometimes it even destroys the ability of individuals to recognize members of their own families. Now, at the end of March 2014, we're seeing reports warning that Alzheimer's disease is a growing problem, and we're also seeing reports claiming that Alzheimer's disease is a diminishing problem, all of which raises the really, really key question of what family caregivers are to believe about what the future could hold for Alzheimer's disease, and that's because it, Alzheimer's disease, creates such major challenges for family caregivers. And this is why our topic, dementia and Alzheimer's disease taking nothing for granted, is so important. Now, to discuss it, our guests are Dr. Tiffany Chow and Dr. Robert Wilson. Now, Tiffany is a senior clinician scientist at the Rotman Research Institute, and she's also staff behavioral neurologist at Baycrest Ross Memory Clinic. She holds a dual appointment as associate professor of neurology and geriatric psychiatry at the University of Toronto. She sees patients with early onset dementias in her Baycrest clinic. Her research Research explores the use of neuroimaging to identify reasonable biomarkers for frontotemporal dementia, mild cognitive impairment, and Alzheimer's disease. Her commitment to family caregiver concerns in dementia motivates her active participation as a medical advisory council member of the International Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration. And she's also developed a popular website for children who are family caregivers to middle-aged parents with dementia. And she's also, as an educational activity, um, she's produced a book for children who are too young to access the Internet. Now, Bob holds a PhD in clinical psychology from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. He's a senior neuropsychologist at the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center. 
He's a professor in the departments of neurological sciences and psychology at Rush University Medical Center, and he directs the section of cognitive neuroscience within the Department of Neurological Sciences. From 1976 to 1978, he was a postdoctoral fellow in clinical neuropsychology in the Department of Psychology at Rush University Medical Center. He earned his bachelor's degree in history and political science in 1970 from Hiram College in Hiram, Ohio, and in 1973, his master's degree in psychology from Akron University in Akron, Ohio. So, welcome to the show, Tiffany and Bob. Thank you. Great to be with you. Right. Starting with you, Tiffany, please. Please tell us more about your career and, in particular, how you became interested in studying dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Tiffany? I'd actually originally wanted to become an obstetrician gynecologist. Uh, which is the other end of life. Um, but I, I ended up learning in medical school at Rush, uh, where Bob is now, that uh, neurology afforded me the kind of patient-doctor relationship that can motivate me to keep my knowledge base up to date and maybe, more importantly, to keep asking questions. Um, there are things about how the brain can modulate behavior and mood that are just so fascinating and, and it's really still the frontier of medicine. So this is this has been my chosen career, which I've been very happy with. Now, how did you actually take the step of studying dementia and Alzheimer's? What, 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 where did you go to study it, in other words? The, um, when you are doing your neurology residency, you get to see, you get a sampler of all kinds of different specialties. At, at first, I thought I might want to do stroke because it seemed very exciting to be um, running into the emergency room and saving people from their strokes by administering TPA. But I realized that that would be very much like uh, being an obstetrician, that you get called in the middle of the night, which I'm not good with. So I uh, turned my attentions to other places that I, I felt excitement, and I really like older people. I like hearing their stories, and when there is one person in the couple who's affected with dementia, it, it becomes a different chapter in their love story, which is really nice to be around. Right. Now, Bob, same question for you. Please tell us more about your career and how you became interested in studying Alzheimer's disease. Bob? Well, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist, which is a clinical psychologist who studies neurological disorders. And my specialty within that area has always been measuring thinking and memory skills. Uh, now, when I, when I started my career, uh, which was quite a while ago in 1976, uh, Alzheimer's disease was actually not considered a very common disorder. And it was only in the next decade or two that it became apparent how common it was. But I was drawn to it from the first because uh, its main impact on behavior is on thinking and memory at a time when, uh, say, basic motor and sensory skills are still relatively untouched. So uh, a traditional neurological examination that mainly looks at, at sensory and motor problems uh, might be passed in flying colors by a patient with early Alzheimer's disease. So I was drawn to this disorder because it required very careful testing of these skills. Uh, and as I moved on in my clinical work, I, I became even more fascinated because I realized how varied the course of this disease was, how difficult it was to predict, and how difficult it was to diagnose when it began so gradually and slowly over many years. 
uh, I also had the good fortune that in the late 1980s, uh, some very good Alzheimer's disease researchers uh, came to my institution, uh, Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. And uh, at that point, we launched the first of what turned out to be a series of longitudinal studies looking at uh, sort of how people develop Alzheimer's disease, how it progresses, and the factors that contribute to it. And I've been kind of addicted to these longitudinal studies and have been working on them ever since. Right. Now, we're going to come back to a lot of that um, in the following segments. But go, going back to Tiffany now, please. Please tell us about your research and clinical work as a physician as it relates to dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Tiffany? Uh, well, starting with my research, um, I have been in a lucky position. Uh, when I was at Rush as a medical student, I actually did get to work with uh, Dr. Fox and uh, Dr. Bennett, both of whom were very big parts of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center there. Uh, so that got me excited about um, the clinical aspects of seeing patients and working with their families. But my research has allowed me to have both micro and macro views of dementia. Um, I've received funding to look at the brain with different types of functional imaging, so that as opposed to a CT scan or an MRI that shows you where the structures are, we can actually put in radioactive tags so we can look at how the metabolic activity of the brain is different in controls without memory problems versus those with a dementia. Or we can look for specific proteins that aren't usually in the brain, such as amyloid, and we'll talk more about that later in this interview. Um, and then uh, the opposite end of the microscopic would be the macroscopic view, looking at some qualitative studies, figuring out how our young people can figure into the picture of what's going on in dementia. Young people are becoming caregivers, sometimes even earlier in life than we would like them to. They are the future. They could be our future talent for neuroscience, and they are going to be the elderly cohort of 2074. Uh, and uh, part of my interest in today's show is that we're going to try to talk about what the trends are over watching different cohorts of elderly people. And I think things are going to look very different for these kids in 2074 than they will look for us as we hit our 80s. Right. We're going to come back to that. Now, Bob, again, same question. Please tell us about your research and work as a neuropsychologist, particularly as it relates to Alzheimer's disease. Bob? Sure. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, our specialty here are these longitudinal studies where we start with people who are cognitively healthy older people. We evaluate them with memory tests and then a neurological examination on a yearly basis. And when they die, they agree to a brain autopsy. This allows us to measure the pathological changes that are traditionally linked to Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. Uh, and this allows us then, uh, when we look at risk factors, um, my, my specialty is trying to identify risk factors that predict cognitive health in the future. Not everyone develops dementia and mild cognitive impairments. Some do, some don't. Uh, so in these studies, we're able to look at the factors that predict cognitive health in old age and to see if they do it by increasing the pathology that is traditionally associated with these diseases or whether they're somehow working through some independent way to make people more resilient to that pathology. And my interest in particular are lifestyle factors like personality traits, 
or how cognitively stimulating your lifestyle is, how many books you read, and this sort of thing, and how these affect your risk of developing dementia and Alzheimer's disease in old age, and actually how they do it in the brain. Now, just to follow quickly with you, Bob, on that theme, basically, you, your research is pretty fundamental in the way it's relating changes you see um, in the brain of somebody who's died and relating those changes to lifestyle factors. Now, have I got that right? Is that a fair summary? Right. The, one of the paradoxes of Alzheimer's disease is there's not a perfect match between who has the, di- who has the disease pathology in their brain and who has dementia during life. And so a lot more people die with the pathology of Alzheimer's disease than have dementia during life. And these people, we think, are somehow resilient to that pathology, and we're trying to understand what makes them resilient, whereas others are not. And I want to be one of those resilient people. We all do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I think that's a great point now, because... This is where we have to take the break um, because this is where we have to pay our rent. And um, so we'll do that now. So this is Dr. Gordon Adley and my guests are Dr. Tiffany Chow and Dr. Rob, Robert Wilson. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com If you're single or in a relationship, love can be hard to find. That's right. Even if you are in a relationship. Listen for Conscious Soulmates with Susan Ordolano to find out more. You'll learn how to find your way into a meaningful relationship or to make the one you're in a successful one. Through the wisdom of Susan and her guests, you'll discover what inside yourself is keeping you from being happy and in love. Conscious Soulmates is broadcast live every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Are you living the life you were truly meant to live? Join host Janice Darrow each week for Living the Best You. Our program guides you to the empowerment of the real you and your inner intuitive voice. That inner voice can and does lead us to a magnificent and empowering life when we learn to listen to it. Gain greater tools on how to listen and follow your dreams through Janice's wisdom and those of her enlightened guests. You'll be ready to live a more fulfilled life. Tune in to Living the Best You every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, 
back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tiffany Chow and Dr. Robert Wilson. Our topic is dementia and Alzheimer's disease, taking nothing for granted. Now, both of you, please, let's highlight what family caregivers should know about the causes, complications and other disorders associated with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So starting with you, Bob, please, please highlight for us key things, really, really key things that family caregivers should know about the causes of Alzheimer's disease. Bob? Okay. Uh, the What we traditionally consider the cause of Alzheimer's disease are plaques and tangles that build up in the brain, and these are clumps of abnormal proteins. They're very, very common. People who die in their 80s and 90s, almost all of them have some plaques and tangles, and about two-thirds actually meet pathological criteria for the disease, but only about half of those, that number, actually have signs of severe cognitive impairment before they die. Now, these plaques and tangles accumulate very gradually over decades in the brain, and recent research suggests that the buildup actually may begin in early adulthood, possibly even in the teens. Uh, For many years, the buildup is not related to any cognitive symptoms, but eventually it starts to cause very, very mild symptoms that gradually increase very, very gradually, but may go on and increase for 10 or 15 years before a person actually develops what we call dementia, where they're no longer able to care for their basic activities of daily living. So what I really want to say is this is a very, very chronic disease that can uh, envelop much of the lifespan. And if we're lucky enough to live long enough, nearly all of us will have some of this disease affecting our behavior. Okay. Now, Tiffany, please highlight for us key things that family caregivers should know about the causes of dementia. And I'm separating dementia now into a broader thing than just Alzheimer's. But if I'm not right about that, please straighten me um, and clarify that point. Tiffany? So, Gordon, I think you were right on during the introduction where you say that one of the major causes of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. Um, One of the frequently asked questions from laypeople is, what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? And now seems like a good time to get into that a little bit. There are many causes of dementia. Dementia is just our label for when you are having some problems with your cognitive function that keep you from being able to do your usual things independently. So Alzheimer's disease is one cause of dementia, but anything that can harm the areas of the brain that are responsible for higher cognitive function can lead to dementia. So I'm talking about repetitive head trauma, stroke, Parkinson's disease, diabetes. I often will phrase it as um, there are there's a house of dementia and there are many doors that lead into the house of dementia. Bob's points from just a minute ago are very well taken in that these things accumulate over time. So those of us who don't have dementia yet, and the earlier in your life you're thinking about this, the better off you may be because when you understand what are risk factors and what are the things that build up your cognitive reserve, you can fend these things off later and you can keep yourself from falling into the house of dementia. Bob's longitudinal work with, uh, with, with people who go from normal cognition to impairment 
helps us to sort out and prioritize what these risk factors or the um, the negative uh, inverse risk factors, in other words, preventive activities may be. Um, because there are many causes of dementia, that's why it may seem like the information you get in the news is um, conflicting or conflicted because in some ways there's a growing prevalence of Alzheimer's disease because we have more and more elderly people, so just a, a larger number of persons who have cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease is, is going to be growing. But it's a declining problem in that, interestingly, the people who were 80 19, back in 1972 have different problems from the people who are 80 now. And so those are some of the interesting studies we'll talk about in a few minutes. Right. Bob, back to you. Still, I'm still on about the key things that family caregivers should know, but this time I'm asking you about the key things they should know about the complications that occur with Alzheimer's disease. Bob? Um, well, I guess I would say a couple of things. One is that um, back on the cause of dementia, uh, I want to underscore Tiffany's point that that. Alzheimer's disease, though it's probably the leading cause of dementia, the most common cause of dementia is not Alzheimer's disease. It's Alzheimer's disease plus something else. So almost everybody who has Alzheimer's disease has Alzheimer's disease and strokes, or Alzheimer's disease and Lewy bodies, or Alzheimer's disease and Lewy bodies and strokes, and maybe TDP43 or something of that sort. So most dementia that we see in, in late life is due to a mixture of pathologies. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why every case is, a, every person's course is a little bit different from everyone else's. There are different mixtures of pathology at different severities. Uh, and again, uh, the complications that can set in with these, these dementia syndromes are enormous. Uh, and indeed, um, towards the end of the course, um, tremendous health problems uh, begin to intervene because the brain is, amongst other things, uh, responsible for regulating very important bodily functions. And as the disease spreads to more and more parts of the brain, beyond the thinking and learning centers, uh, it becomes more and more lethal. And indeed, uh, Alzheimer's disease is a fatal disease disease. Uh, we now think that the typical life expectancy is only three or four years once the person has been diagnosed with dementia or severe cognitive impairment. Ah. Um, I'm going to pass to Tim, Tiffany on this one. It's essentially the same question. Right. You know, the key things that family caregivers should know about other disorders that occur or are associated with Alzheimer's disease. It's what I'm really after is things that conditions that arise, so to speak, in parallel with the Alzheimer's disease, but aren't necessarily caused by it or closely associated with it. What should family caregivers know about that? I think uh, one of the things that surprises some caregivers is that um, this can exacerbate premorbid conditions. It can exacerbate what you started with. So if you have a person who's on the obsessive compulsive side, this may make them more severely obsessive-compulsive. If they had a tendency towards anxiety, they may really, at this point, um, because of the combination of 
the old anxiety plus the new Alzheimer's disease, they may actually need to get medication to help them control that anxiety. Again, you know, these are traits. So each of us has a different personality profile. If you tend to be sort of suspicious in the context of Alzheimer's disease, you may get full-blown delusions um, that make you paranoid. Um, it also can exacerbate any comorbidity in that uh, if a person was taking care of a chronic condition like diabetes, they won't be able to take as good care of themselves, maybe because of their judgment, maybe because they forget that they haven't taken their medication, maybe because they're refusing to take the medications that they need in order to control their other medical problems. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is that if there were any addictions or tendency towards addiction uh, previously, once the person has Alzheimer's disease, that's going to be their go-to. So if you have someone who stops drinking very appropriately, but who's forgotten about the dangers of drinking alcohol or forgets that they've already finished the bottle of wine, this, has, this becomes your recurrent problem. Additionally, um, some caregivers are surprised that uh, the person goes back to smoking. But if you're able to visualize Alzheimer's disease as having gone back in time because you've forgotten the 10 years in between or the 15 years in between or sometimes back to the 20 years in between, then uh, they've, they've gone back to the old habits of those times or the, the carefree days before they had an illness that they had to be careful about. So these are the things that can complicate the caregiving. I, I, I have a hard time... Uh, listening to the stories of caregivers who say he keeps smoking. He's smoking in the house. He's smoking in bed now. This becomes something that's dangerous for not only the patient, but the rest of the household. Right. Absolutely. Now, Bob, just to go back to you again quickly, to, to ask you this. You mentioned stroke as something that happens in the may happen in the progress of Alzheimer's disease. And stroke is something, if I'm right, that people can die from. And so... In that sense, is it right to say that these complications that you were talking about could in effect be what people die from rather than the Alzheimer's disease itself? Is that right? Well, that is certainly complicated assigning a cause of death to people in late life because they often have a, a, a host of comorbid conditions along with dementia. Uh, we recently completed a study looking at two of these longitudinal studies over a long period of time, though, and uh, there's no doubt that having uh, Alzheimer's disease or dementia dramatically increases uh, mortality rates. And the attributable cause of death was uh, really comparable to cancer and heart disease when you factored in uh, accurate measurement of who had the disease and when they developed it. So it's, it's clearly a contributing factor. Uh, my father died of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, he died of a heart attack, but that was a heart attack induced by having severe dementia and brain atrophy. Right. Now, Tiffany, back to you. When you're talking about the, the kind of behavioral things, like going back to drinking or smoking and maybe putting the family, not only the individual, at risk, the, this sort of behavioral challenge, is this something that family caregivers are... Um, are able to recognize early enough to do anything about it, or is there anything they can do about it? Tiffany? It's a very difficult puzzle to solve. Uh, there are uh, different degrees of physical capability 
that go along with the degree of cognitive impairment. So, for instance, if the dementia is caused by frontotemporal dementia, uh, the judgment is lost and the memory is generally intact, at least early in the illness, and the person looks well enough to the casual observer that they can get into a car, drive it over to the liquor store, buy a bottle of wine or two, bring it home, and drink it and get rid of it before anybody else comes home from work or school. That's when it's a big problem. Um, that's when we need, to, we healthcare providers need to make sure that we actually go over a checklist of what's going on at home and whether the patient is safe. Uh, once we've identified that the person is obtaining their own alcohol, even if the family's been clearing out the cabinets or locking things up so that there's limited access, um, if that person can still even walk to the liquor store to get their own stuff, then we've got a problem which can only be solved if those caregivers start to feel comfortable reaching out to the rest of their neighbors and community to enlist their help. If this, if this person, if the patient goes to the same liquor store all the time, then that uh, manager may be able to help by reminding the patient, you know what, we already sold you something and uh, we have a limit on what we can provide to you. If enough people can help to redirect the patient to safer behaviors, then, then we're in good shape. But in earlier stages of dementia, when it's not clear that the patient shouldn't be doing whatever he or she is trying to do, then, then we have danger. Right. Now, I'm going to, to take the break now, um, but these are profoundly important observations for family caregivers, and that is this, all the things that we've basically been talking about that occur alongside Alzheimer's disease and um, the picture I'm getting is basically hasten the death from whatever attributable cause there is. And that's profoundly important as an understanding. So let's, let's take the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guests are Dr. Tiffany Chow and Dr. Robert Wilson. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Do you feel like sometimes you just don't know where to start with your health and fitness routine? Every week, you can hear from people who have been where you feel that you are right now and find out how they move forward and are living their best lives ever. It's called Lifestyle 360, and your host is Nicole Monier. Get inspired to take control of your health and your life. Tune into Lifestyle 360 every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Want the inside scoop about what's going on in the social networks of art and entertainment? Tune in to Star Power Hour brought to you by 4talent.com. We'll talk to the top professionals in the entertainment industry and find out what they're working on and what's next. Your host is James Barber, who has his finger on the pulse of the arts and entertainment world. Star Power Hour, brought to you by 4talent.com, live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. What does success mean to you? Is it being just like the person on the other side of the fence where the grass is supposedly greener? We harbor too many feelings of envy and suppressed anger targeted at others, and it's holding us back from our success. 
Tune in to Wealthy Thoughts with Richard Levy. Just by listening, you'll be empowered to make positive lifestyle changes to live the successful life that you deserve to live. Wealthy Thoughts can be heard every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tiffany Chow and Dr. Robert Wilson. Our topic is dementia and Alzheimer's disease taking nothing for granted. Now, both of you, let's highlight what family caregivers should know about the trends in the occurrence of Alzheimer's disease and what these trends mean for protection and prevention. Now, you've both already said several important things about those trends, but I'd like you to drill down a little bit further so that the picture becomes clear as the way that you want it to be um, in regard to things that family caregivers should know. So, Bob, Starting with you, please, please highlight what you think family caregivers should know about the current trends in, as we see them, in the occurrence of Alzheimer's disease. Bob? Well, there is some good news. Uh, Some recent epidemiologic studies have suggested that because, uh, let's say, baby boomers are are more educated than the last few uh, generations, and they appear to have higher levels of cognitive ability as well, that this has been uh, associated with a slight decrease in the rate of Alzheimer's disease amongst this generation. Now, there's just been a few studies that have found this, and there's a negative study as well, so it's the, the evidence is still a little bit murky, but it makes a lot of sense, and I think most people believe that there probably will be some decrease in the overall rate because of that. Now, the bad news is that uh, longevity is, is still quite high and may possibly increase, and age is a huge risk factor for dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So if the baby boomers live a few years longer, it might be long enough to offset the benefit from the extra levels of education and so on. And there's also the concern that there may be fewer caregivers uh, per elderly person in the baby boomer generation. Right. Tiffany, again, please highlight what you think family caregivers should know about the trends, implications for protection against Alzheimer's disease. What, 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 what do you deduce from the trends about protection? Tiffany? Uh, Gordon, you and Bob and I are all part of this very wide range called the boomers. And so we're all looking ahead to the oldest of the boomers to see how they're going to do in terms of getting dementia. Interestingly, um, as as Bob mentioned, there have been some papers in The Lancet from Sweden and from the U.K. that say that the elderly people of 
more recent years, have a lower prevalence of Alzheimer's disease. But children of patients who now have Alzheimer's disease cannot assume that they're doing more to prevent onset just because they're aware and just because they have maybe higher cognitive reserve because of their educational levels. In fact, uh, the older set of boomers have a higher um, prevalence of stroke risk factors than previous cohorts did. And as we've been saying a couple of times already in this broadcast, stroke is something that bumps you into showing cognitive impairment earlier in life than if you had some Alzheimer's disease changes simmering in your brain and no other comorbidity. So we have got to get the message out starting yesterday that boomers keep doing what you're doing, but make time for physical activity. Make time for making sure that your blood pressure is not too high, that you have a sustainable diet that is not a high-fat diet because you don't want to have a heart attack or a stroke. This is going to shorten the amount of time you can spend with your full cognitive uh, ability. And uh, interestingly, when you look at some of the trends in stroke and how people survive after they've had a stroke, our technology and uh, post-stroke treatment and follow-up have improved so that if the only problem you've got is a stroke, you survive longer now than you might have in the 90s, the early 1990s. So that's great. But if you have other illnesses along with that stroke, the morbidity or the, the survival rate is still as low as it was back in the 90s. So we really have to be more careful about all these aspects of our health that tie in together. Right. Bob, from a neuropsychological perspective, please, and again, it's the same thing, highlight for family caregivers how you see the future for preventing and even curing Alzheimer's disease. Bob? Well, uh, curing it is probably something that may be a a long way off. It's really going to require uh, basic science advances that allow us to um, somehow isolate these neurodegenerative lesions like uh, the neurofibrillary tangles, the amyloid plaques, the Lewy bodies, and so on, uh, because they're the big drivers in late-life cognitive decline and dementia. Uh, But absent uh, breakthroughs in those areas, uh, our research suggests that uh, about half of all loss of cognitive uh, ability in old age is not related to Alzheimer's disease or stroke or Lewy bodies, but is related to some other things that we don't understand, but we refer to collectively as sort of your reserve capacity or your ability to, res- to uh, tolerate age-related brain pathology. So I think one of the big uh, areas in the future is, is going to be to try to target this uh, reserve capacity to enhance it. Uh, One approach is to try to train complex attentional skills. This is a very hot area of research now, uh, and there have been some very interesting findings, but again, results have been somewhat inconsistent. Uh, Another approach is likely to be to try to enhance parts of the circuits in the brain that play a critical role in supporting cognition. An example might be uh, the locus ceruleus has been shown to be very related to cognitive decline that has nothing to do with these other pathologies. It's the main uh, manufacturer of norepinephrine in the brain. Uh, possibly medications that enhance norepinephrine might, have, might help people to, res- 
who tolerate brain pathology better than others. And lastly, one of the things we're doing at our center is trying to target proteins that are associated with, again, resilience to these brain pathologies, and then to try to identify already existing medications that target these proteins that could be brought into clinical trials without uh, any delay, essentially. Right. Now, Tiffany, I'm going to ask you exactly the same question and ask you to answer it from a medical perspective, that is, as, as a physician. Well, what do you want to highlight for family caregivers, how you, you see the future for preventing and curing Alzheimer's disease? Uh, I want to build on uh, the last thing that Bob just said. He reminded us about the different proteins that have gone abnormal that get you into uh, Alzheimer's disease or other types of dementia. And some of the interesting reports, again, comparing old people from a while ago and old people from now, um, includes a, a study that just came out in neurology earlier this year. Um, so old people who went to autopsy in 1972 versus older people who went to autopsy in 2006, so fairly recently, the amount of amyloid plaques was actually decreased in the more recent group. So I think one of the trends is that our, we, while we're currently trying to figure out anti-amyloid interventions, those may not be as relevant for those of us who are still under the age of 60 when we get to be in our 70s or 80s. Um, why is the disease changing in that way? I don't know. It's a really fascinating question, but it's almost like a tiger that can change its stripes over time. So that's one thing to keep an eye peeled for. The other thing is that our cultural expectations for quality of life have been changing over time. It's very rare now for someone not to uh, hold a gym membership or to be at least primed to the idea that they should be pursuing physical activity. And so, you know, this works hand-in-hand with developing more complex attention and other things that, uh, like reading that can help cognitive reserve. And I think that will change how people are uh, falling into the house of dementia in generations to come, but also it might change the way that the disease progresses because there's actually some data out there that says that if you already have Alzheimer's disease and you continue to exercise in an appropriate way for your condition, you may actually be able to stave off progression for a little while. So that's, that's wonderful to know. The other thing that's very interesting is that um, regardless of whether you're trying to treat a brain tumor or Alzheimer's disease, getting the drug into your brain is a challenge. Physically, there is a blood-brain barrier that you actually want to be nice and tight, a big firewall, if you will, around the brain. But sometimes you want to get your medication in there. Um, And we've tried to use Trojan horse uh, types of methodologies to sneak things in across the blood-brain barrier. But more and more, people are turning to nasal inhalant uh, routes of, of uh, administration. So um, in, in, a, in a colloquial way, I can say that we will probably be expecting to be putting things up our noses, um, whether it's insulin or um, oxytocin, there's more and more research coming out about what we might do. And, and because there's so many different things that are leading to inappropriate aging of the brain, you may be getting a nasal inhaler that has a cocktail of things that would help you to either stave off progression of your illness or stave off getting the illness. Uh, right. My hope uh, is that there will be less isolation 
for the elderly, regardless of their level of cognitive impairment, because we know that social isolation, depression, um, uh, sadness are risk factors for cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease in particular. Right. Bob, just quickly back to you. You've, you both have emphasized what I might call looking after your body and not just being concerned about your brain. That is, you pointed out the importance of physical activity, uh, the importance of uh, a kind of life that would be healthy. Um, I'm really asking you the question in this way. Are we as a society well enough understanding of that point that caring for your body is an important way of dealing with the challenge of Alzheimer's and the things that it's associated with. Bob, what do you think? Well, I think people are aware of the connection, um, but there's still the problem of getting anyone to be more physically active, particularly old people. And one of the unfortunate things in our society is that most older people aren't that physically active. Uh, but it, it really is a grab bag of things. Uh, I don't think we should overplay the physical activity. It does appear to be associated with cognition in old age, but the association doesn't look like it's really large. So some physical activity is undoubtedly important. Another thing that's important about physical activity is that when you get to your 80s or 90s, sometimes physical exercise of a, a, a coordinated way is not that practical. We found we put a, a device called an Actical on people and just leave it on for a couple of weeks, and it records even when you're inactive how active you are, how much you twitch, get up and down, and so on. And controlling for how much you exercise, activity on that level is still predictive of good cognitive function. So any kind of activity that you can partake in, even if you're somewhat disabled, I think is a good thing in old age. Right. Very good. Now, talking about um, timing, uh, age, whatever, uh, we have to take the break once more. So let's do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guests are Dr. Tiffany Chow and Dr. Robert Wilson. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radios. Please stay with us. We will be back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Tune in every week for the Wellness Lounge, a step further with host Desiree Watson. Our program empowers you to incorporate a wellness lifestyle into your life, supported by a diverse selection of guests, including physicians, athletes, and education and government professionals, while helping you realize the connection between mind and body and spirit you'll achieve a personal edge in injury avoidance stress management and personal development the wellness lounge a step further airs mondays at 9 a.m eastern time 6 a.m pacific time on voice america empowerment like so many others do you put on a game face to the world the stress of home life work life and personal life converge on us on practically a daily basis Yet, so rarely do we let others see our real selves, and we carry on like we don't have a single problem. We need to connect and to find out we're not alone. 
Tune into Stories from the Heart of Leadership with host Shamin Sadek to find out not only what's been created, but the story behind it. Listen live every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tiffany Chow and Dr. Robert Wilson. Um, Our topic is dementia and Alzheimer's disease, taking nothing for granted. Now, both of you, I'd like you to highlight key things that family caregivers should know about treatment and care for Alzheimer's disease, you know, for their family members and the rest of it. In other words, I'm asking you about the takeaway message that, to summarize, you would like our listeners to take away from what you've been talking about that you really think is important that they should know. Now, starting now with Tiffany, please, highlight for us, please, the three key things you think that family caregivers should know about the medical treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Okay, number one, the currently available treatment does not actually restore memory. It can improve your attention, it can improve alerting, but it doesn't work for everybody. Point number two, it generally isn't useful for more than about two or three years. So caregivers need to try not to cling to something that worked earlier. It can work at a certain point in the illness, but the brain keeps changing through the course of the disease, and that means that the different kinds of medications that you use, if any, will also change over time. Point number three, this is why you need to be able to have a dialogue with your prescribing physician about what exactly are the targets for each of the medications prescribed, because then that will allow you to know whether it's time to change the medication, stop the medication, increase the medication. A lot of our caregivers have so much information to keep at top of mind, it can be difficult to remember what the medication was for. But if you know what it's for, then you can just help make decisions about when we don't have to use that medication anymore. And one of the things that is a common mistake from our treating physicians is over-medication of the patient. Right. Bob, same question. Highlight for us, please, three key things that you think family caregivers should know about the neuropsychological treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Okay. Well, first, we've talked about the importance of maintaining a healthy lifestyle to uh, disease prevention or delaying the onset of the disease. Uh, Regardless of how healthy a lifestyle people lived, though, if you have enough of this pathology in your brain, you're going to come down with the disease at some point. So it certainly, it doesn't mean that a person wasn't active enough or didn't read enough books or wasn't conscientious enough. It just means that they have a lot of pathology in their brain. Uh, Once 
the disease is present and the person has dementia, um, working on those behaviors is often not as practical and can be frustrating. Although certainly physical activity and maintaining physical activity, I think, as much as possible is one thing that can be done even after the onset of the, of the terrible cognitive symptoms. Uh, we've talked about how the disease is progressive so that uh, strategies that work in the beginning of the disease when the symptoms are relatively mild may not work as the disease progresses. And at some point, uh, around-the-clock supervision becomes very necessary because behavior is just so unpredictable. Right. Tiffany, please, I'm still on about three key things. The three key things that family caregivers should know about family caregiving for Alzheimer's disease. Tiffany? Number one, if you have not heard about this before and have not talked to anybody about it, please Google Responsive behaviors. This has been gaining some strength in the last two or three years among uh, personal support worker training, um, nursing care for long-term care facilities. If you think about not being able to cognitively function as well as you did in your earlier life, then if you used to be a reader, you might not be able to get as much out of that activity anymore. So a lot of our patients become bored because they can't seek the same ways of engaging with the world around them or seek the same kinds of stimulation that they did before. And out of their boredom, they may be doing uh, repetitive, purposeless behaviors because in some way they're satisfying, but again, they may be uh, disruptive to other people around them. And so the responsive behavior movement is helping family caregivers to bring creativity back to how they help each patient have a more meaningful day. Uh, so I think that's a really important quality of life piece for everybody involved. Uh, my point number two would be wherever possible, think of a way that you can make whatever it is that you're doing as your activity with the patient fun. We can't lose our senses of humor. There are terrible things that are being lost along the way, but life is about changing and there can be some very humorous moments that you can share with the patient. You have to be able to let go of that sense of loss for long enough to be able to appreciate the things that you can still do together. The third very important point for family caregivers is not to let yourself get isolated. Don't get so wrapped up in the caregiving that you are not looking after yourself in terms of your emotional needs or your physical needs because you need to be able to sustain what you're doing over time. Right. Bob. The three key things you think family caregivers should know about family caregiving for Alzheimer's disease. Bob? Well, again, to, to build a little bit on what Tiffany was saying, uh, I think it's a very good suggestion to, again, try to adapt and go with what the person still has. Uh, but in my father's case, uh, gradually he lost his ability to communicate um, with more than one or two words, so he really couldn't carry on a conversation but he still had a terrific sense of humor, and you could tell a joke, and he would laugh totally appropriately, uh, and that was something that he could do really till the very end. Uh, so, again, trying to go with the strengths that are there and not uh, obsessing too much about the ones that have been lost. Uh, a second point, I think, is that uh, this is a job that you do need help with. Uh, this is not a one-person job. It may be in the beginning, 
but you need a break. Uh, you can't watch a person all the time. So it really is a, a question of trying to put together a team rather than doing everything yourself. Those would be the two things I would really stress. Right. Now, we are unfortunately coming to the end of this extraordinarily informative episode of Family Caregivers Unite. And I'm just going to summarize back to you before I thank you uh, something that I observed on this show. And that is, I was interviewing a retired firefighter who was caring for his wife, who was well down the road of um, Alzheimer's. Um, I asked questions of him, because he was my guest, about their life together. And it turned out, he told us, they were childhood sweethearts. And one of the things they really loved to do together was dancing. Um, he explained that in a what it really meant to them. After it was all over, um, and the, thing, the episode had been broadcast, he called me and he said, I think there's something you should know. And it was this. He said, um, when we got to the part, because they were both, they both listened to the broadcast together, and he, he, the firefighter, was talking about their lives together and the joy they had with dancing. He said, and he paused, he said, my wife snuggled up to me. And I think that I would like to conclude from that, that the kind of things you're talk you've just been talking about, which is paying attention to what people can do, what they remember, uh, the things that amuse them, the, the way in which their lives were, can have that sort of stimulus. Now, I'm not making any medical or scientific suggestions, but it was just a very striking piece of feedback that I will remember because it was spoken by somebody who was doing it, understanding it, and caring all at the same time. So it was a message of, um, I think, support for all the things that you both have been saying on this episode. So I want to say thank you very much, Tiffany and Bob, you know, for sharing with us basically your your experience, your 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 research findings, your research directions, your insights and your advice. And I can only say on behalf of all of us, all of us Every success to you in your work because it matters. And work means the clinical caring and the research. And I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be Buddhist psychotherapy and post-traumatic disorder. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet be talking with you then thank you again for joining us this week for family caregivers unite with your host dr gordon atherley please tune in again twice every week mondays at 10 a.m pacific time 1 p.m eastern time on the voice america empowerment channel and tuesdays at 10 a.m pacific time 1 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel until the next show we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful